0: David Letterer, Deputy Editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. It is my pleasure today to interview Dr. Scott Halpern, physician and health services researcher at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Dr. Halpern is the lead author of an original research article entitled Incidence and Distribution of Transplantable Organs from Donors After Circulatory Determination of Death in United States Intensive Care Units, published in the April 2013 issue of of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. In this study, Dr. Halpern examined the potential supply of solid organ donors after circulatory determination of death in the United States. I'll be asking Dr. Halpern a few questions about his article. Welcome Dr. Halpern and thank you for joining me today.
1: My pleasure and thanks for having me, David.
0: So Scott, let me begin by asking what drove you to look at the potential supply of donors after circulatory determination of death?
1: Well, most organ donors in the United States come from people who have been declared dead on the basis of neurological criteria. However, the supply of these so called brain dead donors has been fixed at approximately 6,500 donors per year for nearly a decade now. And even if improvements were made such that all possible brain dead donors became actual donors, the supply of organs from these donors would not be sufficient to provide organs for all patients who could benefit from them. This gap between the supply of organs and the demand for organs has been around for a long time. And in response, several solutions have been proposed. Probably the most important solution has been to use living donors in the case of kidney transplantation. But of course, that doesn't impact the supplies of organs such as lungs, hearts, and pancreas. So no strategy has been sufficient, and indeed, wait lists of patients awaiting organ transplant continue to get longer. One of the most recent proposed solutions has been to expand the use of organs from people who die because their heart stops. That is, they're declared dead on the basis of circulatory criteria before they necessarily become brain dead. This is the way most people die, of course, and indeed the very first organ transplants were done using these donors. We used to call them non-heart beating donors, and now we call them donors after circulatory determination of death, or DCDD. There's tremendous renewed enthusiasm for DCDD, as evidenced by policies requiring all hospitals receiving federal funding to have protocols in place to recover organs from such people. However, it's entirely unclear how much benefit could really be provided by this push to recover organs from donors after circulatory determination of death. In an earlier study, we reported that at best, the supply of such donors could be expanded by roughly 10 to 20 percent under the most optimistic of assumptions. However, this study left at least two key questions unanswered. First, How many extra organs of each type, that is kidneys, liver, lung, pancreas, could be obtained if we routinely identified all possible organ donors after circulatory determination of death? And the second question is that given the resources and expertise required for successfully recovering organs from such donors, is it possible to predict which hospitals are likely to yield the bulk of these organs so that we could target resources and expertise building more efficiently? And those were the questions we sought to answer with this study.
0: Oh, great. So can, can you tell me how you went about answering those questions in your study?
1: Sure. First, I should say that this type of research really requires a close collaboration with and support from an organ procurement organization, or OPO. That's because we need to not only identify actual donors, as many prior studies have done, but we also need to identify the quote-unquote missed opportunities, people who did not go on to actually become organ donors but could have. And this is a big undertaking because it requires reviewing the charts of everyone, or at least everyone within a defined region who dies, and then determine whether they would have been medically eligible to donate had they been identified in a timely fashion. Fortunately, OPOs do such massive chart reviews routinely for their own quality assessment initiatives, although they don't routinely collect all of the patient information that you'd need to say with confidence whether a patient could or could not have been a donor after circulatory determination of death. So we were fortunate in that the OPO that covers the eastern half of Pennsylvania, the southern half of New Jersey, and all of Delaware, which goes by the name of the Gift of Life donor program, was willing to partner with us and expand their normal chart review efforts to capture the extra data we needed to make such determinations. So we started by training the OPO's 30 or 40 chart reviewers to use a new data acquisition form that we created, and we had them capture all of these data over a full calendar year. We then counted the number of donors and extra organs that were, or at least could have been, recovered from donors after circulatory determination of death, and then calculated how big a percentage increase this provided over the brain-dead organ donor supply from the exact same time period. Because the OPO has high-quality data on all 134 acute care hospitals in the service area with the geographic boundaries that I just mentioned, this partnership also enabled us to calculate how many donors came from specific types of hospitals, such as those with a certain number of ICU beds.
0: Wow, that that sounds like a lot of work. Well, tell me, what did did you find in your study? Were there many potential DCD donors?
1: Well, I think a lot of it depends on uh, how you look at it. I think the first thing to keep in mind is that we intentionally used optimistic approaches to estimate the supply. And this was... Our goal from the beginning. We wanted to take a best case scenario approach because it's likely that the field is going to evolve to be more inclusive in the future. So we wanted to produce results that even if they were overly optimistic today, they might realistically portray what's possible down the line. With that said, we found that the full capture of donors after circulatory determination of death would allow us to perform up to 50% more lung transplants each year, or roughly an extra 700 procedures annually.
0: Oh, well, that, that seems like a lot of extra transplant procedures. How, how does that compare to the number of people waiting for lung transplantation in the U.S.?
1: Well, within a few years, if these numbers are true, this could certainly be enough to nearly eliminate waitlists for lung transplantation. At the very least, it would help make the waits for lung transplantation much shorter. However, it's not the only thing that would need to happen. We would also need, for example, to train more thoracic surgeons to understand how to recover and transplant lungs from donors after circulatory determination of death. At present, only a handful of surgeons have much experience doing this procedure. But that seems to be a solvable problem.
0: Okay. Uh, But you looked at uh, other solid organ procedures as well, like kidney and liver transplant. How many more transplants might we see there?
1: Well, the increases in the supplies of these other organs, uh, unfortunately, would not be nearly as robust. Full capture of the entire supply of donors after circulatory determination of death would increase the supplies of kidney, liver, and pancreas transplants, for example, by no more than 20%. And again, that's a really optimistic estimate. Of course, even a small boost, the supplies of these organs would be a considerable benefit to the 100,000 or so patients who are currently waiting for these other organs, most of whom are waiting for kidneys. And many, if not most, kidney transplant surgeons have already learned how to have great success with donors after circulatory determination of death for kidney transplantation. So some of the other problems that I mentioned may not manifest in improving the kidney supply, for example.
0: So you looked at 134 acute care hospitals. Did you did you find anything notable about the types of hospitals where these organs were likely to be found?
1: We did, and I think this is actually the good news part of the story, or, or, or the particularly good news part of the story. So keep in mind that the numbers I just mentioned were all best case scenarios, but a big barrier to realizing these best case scenarios is that doing so would take a lot of education of clinicians about donors after circulatory determination of death and would require development of hospital specific protocols, not only to identify these donors in real time, but also to manage them up and through the time of organ recovery. So we're excited to realize that about three-quarters of all of these donors could be found in just one-sixth of the hospitals in our region. And almost all of these high-yield hospitals were pretty easy to identify. Almost all of them had at least 20 ICU beds and a level one or a high-volume trauma center. And this is important because it suggests ways to target educational resources most efficiently and may allow experience to build more quickly in these high-yield places. Without physician and nurse comfort with donation after circulatory determination of death, it's simply not going to happen. And building that comfort really requires experience. So I think there are ways to do this by targeting the high-volume hospitals.
0: Okay, so what does this mean for, for the practicing clinician? How do you envision your findings uh, might influence the day-to-day practice of an intensivist and other providers in the ICU? Well,
1: like I said, I, I think ICU clinicians need to be educated about the potential benefits of donors after circulatory determination of death for the population of patients outside the ICU, that is those awaiting organ transplantation. The problem is that most ICU providers will see none or at most one potential donor after circulatory determination of death each year, and that's not enough to build comfort with the practice. So Their willingness to embrace DCDD management as an important part of critical care may understandably suffer. So I hope that our data can be used to help providers, particularly those practicing in the high-yield donor hospitals that I just mentioned, to understand the potential benefits of embracing management of donors after circulatory determination of death and working with their local OPOs and transplant teams to develop and improve their protocols for identifying such donors and recovering organs from them when families consent. I also think that a big barrier to ICU clinicians embracing this new approach is that they have concerns about how donation after circulatory determination of death may affect the quality of -of end-of-life care provided for these donors and their families. Indeed, a study we published in Critical Care Medicine last year showed that only about half of ICU nurses and a third of ICU doctors in the U.S. thought that managing such donors could help improve the quality of -of end-of-life care. Even though most clinicians recognized that doing so would allow a way for something good to come of the tragedy of the patient's death. But at least for physicians, we found that those who had more experience with managing donors after circulatory determination of death were more likely to support it and think that it could improve end-of-life care. So it's certainly plausible that increased experience can quell concerns to some extent.
0: So what what's the next step? What what additional studies are needed in this area?
1: Well, later this year, we'll be publishing in the Blue Journal an ethics and policy statement on donation after circulatory determination of death. This was a huge undertaking by a a large number of people, and it's been endorsed by a number of key stakeholders, including the American Thoracic Society, the Society of Critical Care Medicine, the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation, the United Network of Organ Sharing, and the Association of Organ Procurement Organizations. And in it, we identify several key areas for future research in this area. One of the areas we identify, which is perhaps the most important you know, to my mind, is that we really need to better understand the true impact of donation after circulatory determination of death on the quality of end-of-life care. As I said, it seems that greater experience with uh, managing such donors is associated with clinicians being more likely to believe that providing such services um, can improve the quality of end-of-life care. But that's only a small piece of the puzzle. We really need to know not just how this is viewed by providers, but how this process impacts the process of dying and family members' bereavement outcomes. For example, it would be really interesting to know whether allowing a family to go forward and have their loved one be a donor after circulatory determination of death increased or decreased the odds that those family members would suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or complicated grief after their loved one passed. This is hard research to do because it's tough to find a large number of these donors in whom family perceptions and experiences could subsequently be evaluated. But even some evidence in this area, I think, would be really helpful. And it might alert us to ways that we can do this better or might reassure those clinicians who continue to harbor doubts about the practice that it can be done sensitively and with good outcomes.
0: Scott, thank you very much for your comments today and for spending this time with me.
1: My pleasure, and thank you, David.